We are the paradoxical ape. Bipedal, naked, large-brained. Long the master of fire, tools, and language, but still trying to understand ourselves. Aware that death is inevitable, yet filled with optimism. We grow up slowly. We hand down knowledge. We empathize and deceive. We shape the future from our shared understanding of the past. Carta brings together experts from diverse disciplines to exchange insights on who we are and how we got here. An exploration made possible by the generosity of humans like you. for having me here. So today I will tell you about the language system and some of its properties that may bear on the question on, of how this system came about. I will begin by defining the scope of my inquiry because people mean many different things by language. Um, I will then present you some evidence um, suggesting that our language system is highly specialized for language. And finally I will speculate a bit on the evolutionary origins of language. So linguistic input comes in through uh, our ears or our eyes. And once it's been analyzed perceptually, we interpret it by um, linking the incoming representation stores toward language knowledge. And this knowledge, of course, is also used for generating utterances during language production. And once we've generated um, uh, an utterance in our heads, we can send it down to our articulation system. And uh, the part that I focus on is this kind of high-level um, component of language processing. This cartoon shows you the approximate locations of the brain regions that support um, speech perception shown in yellow, uh, visual letter and word recognition in green. Um, this region is known as the visual word form area. Um, articulation in pink and high-level language processing in red. And what differentiates the high-level language processing regions from the perceptual and articulation regions is that they're sensitive to the meaningfulness of the signal. So, for example, the speech regions will respond just as strongly to foreign speech as they respond to meaningful speech in our own language. Um, the visual word from area responds just as much to a string of consonants as it does to real words. The articulation regions can be driven to a full extent by people producing meaningless sequences of syllables. Um, but in contrast, the high-level language processing system or network, or sometimes um, I refer to it just as the language network for short, cares deeply about whether the linguistic signal is meaningful or not. In fact, um, uh, the um, easiest way to find the system in the brain is to contrast responses to meaningful language stimuli like words, phrases, or sentences, um, and some control conditions like linguistically degraded um, stimuli. And the contrast I use most frequently is between um, sentences and sequences of non-words. 
A key methodological innovation that laid the foundation for much of my work was the development of tools that enable us to define the regions of the language network functionally at the individual subject level using contrasts like these. And here I'm showing you um, sample language regions in uh, three individual brains. And this so-called functional localization approach um, has two advantages. One, it circumvents the need to average brains together, which is what's done in the common approach. And it's a very difficult thing to do because brains are quite different across people. Um, and instead, in this approach, we can just average the signals that we extract from these um, key regions of interest. And the second advantage is that it allows us to establish a cumulative research enterprise, which um, I think we all agree is important in science. Uh, because comparing results across studies and labs is quite straightforward if we're confident that we're referring to the same brain regions um, uh, across different studies. And this is just harder and possible to do in the traditional approach, which relies on very coarse anatomical landmarks like the inferior frontal gyrus or the superior temporal sulcus, which spend many centimeters of cortex and are just not at the right level of analysis. So what drives me in my work is the desire to understand the nature of our language knowledge and the computations that mediate language comprehension and production. However, these questions are hard, um, especially given the lack of animal models for language. And so for now, I settle on more tractable questions. For example, one, what is the relationship between the language system and the rest of human cognition? Um, language didn't evolve, um, and it doesn't exist in isolation from um, other evolutionarily older systems, uh, which include the memory and attention mechanisms, the visual and the motor systems, um, the system that supports social cognition, and so on. And that means that we just can't study language as an isolated system, um, and a lot of my research effort um, is aimed at trying to figure out how language fits with the rest of our mind and brain. And the second question delves inside the language system, asking what does it in its internal architecture look like? Um, and it encompasses questions like, what are the component parts of the language system, and what is the division of labor among them um, in space and time? And of course, both of these questions ultimately should constrain the space of possibilities for how language actually works. Um, so they place constraints on both the data structures that underlie language and the computations that are likely performed by the, by the regions of the system. And today I focus on the first of these questions. Okay, so now onto some evidence. Um, so the relationship between um, um, language and the rest of the mind and brain has been long debated, and the literature um, actually is quite abundant with claims that language makes use of the same machinery that we use for performing other cognitive tasks, including um, arithmetic processing, various kinds of executive function tasks, um, perceiving music, uh, perceiving actions, um, abstract conceptual processing, and so on. And I will argue that these claims are not supported by the evidence. Two kinds of evidence speak to the relationship between language and other cognitive systems. Um, there is brain imaging studies, brain imaging evidence, and uh, investigations of patients with brain damage. In um, fMRI studies, we do something very simple. We find our um, regions that seem to respond a lot to language, and then we ask how do they respond to other various non-linguistic tasks. And if they don't, don't show much of a response, then we can uh, conclude that uh, these regions are not engaged during those tasks. And in the patient studies, we can um, evaluate non-linguistic abilities in uh, individuals who don't have um, a functioning language system. And if they perform well, we can conclude that the language system is not necessary for performing those various non-linguistic tasks. So starting with the fMRI evidence, I will show you responses in the language regions to arithmetic, executive function tasks, and music perception um, uh, today. So here are two sample regions, a region in the inferior frontal cortex around Broca's area and a region in the posterior middle temporal gyrus, um, but the rest of the regions of this network uh, look similar in their profiles. And uh, the, the region on the top is kind of in and around um, this region known as Broca's area, except I don't use that term because I don't think it's a very useful term. 
Um, in black and gray, uh, I show you the responses to the two localizer conditions, sentences and non-words. Um, and these are estimated in data that's not used to defining, to, for defining these regions. So we divide the data in half, use half of the data to define the regions, and then the other half to quantify their responses. And um, uh, I will now show you how these regions respond when people are asked to do some simple arithmetic additions, uh, perform um, a series of executive function tasks, like for example, hold a, a set of um, locations in um, spatial memory, spatial locations in, in working memory, uh, or perform um, uh, this classic flanker task, or listen to various musical stimuli. For arithmetic and various executive tasks, we included a harder and an easier um, condition uh, because we wanted to make sure that um, we can identify regions that are classically associated with performing these tasks, which is typically done by contrasting a harder and an easier condition of a, of a task. So um, I'll show you now in different colors responses to these various tasks, starting with the region um, on the lower uh, part of the screen. So we find that this region doesn't respond during arithmetic processing, doesn't respond during working memory, doesn't respond during cognitive control tasks, and doesn't respond during music perception. And um, quite strikingly to me at the time, uh, a very similar profile is observed around this region, which is smack in the middle of so-called Broca's area, um, which appears to be incredibly selective in its response for um, language. And note that it's not just the case that these, for example, demanding tasks fail to show a hard versus an easy difference they respond pretty much at or below fixation baseline when people are engaged in these tests. So that, that, that basically tells you that these language regions work as much when you're doing a bunch of math in your head or hold information in working memory as what you're doing when you're looking at a blank screen. So they really do not care. So of course, to interpret the lack of the response in these language regions, you want to make sure that these tasks activate the brain somewhere else. Otherwise, you may have really bad tasks um, that you don't want to use. So um, of, indeed, they do. So here, are, um, I'll show you uh, activations for the executive function tasks, but music also robustly activates the brain outside of the language system. So here are two sample regions, one in the right frontal cortex, one in the left parietal cortex. And uh, you see um, the, the, pro the profiles of response are quite different from the language regions. For each each task we see um, robust responses, but also a stronger response to the harder than the easier condition across these various domains. And these regions turn out to be part of um, this bilateral frontoparietal network, which is known in the literature by many names, including the cognitive control network or the multiple demand system, the latter term advanced by uh, John Duncan, who uh, wanted to highlight um, the notion that these regions are driven by many different kinds of cognitive demands. And so these regions appear to be sensitive to effort across tasks, and their activity has been linked to a variety of goal-directed behaviors. Interestingly, if you look at the responses of these regions to our um, uh, language localizer conditions, we find exactly the opposite of what we find in the language regions. They respond less to sentences that sequences of non-words, presumably because um, processing sentences requires less effort. Um, but clearly this highlights, again, that the language and the cognitive control system are clearly uh, functionally distinct. Moreover, damage to the regions of the multiple demand network has been shown to lead to decreases in uh, fluid intelligence. So Alex Wilgar and colleagues have reported a strong relationship between the amount of tissue loss in frontal and parietal cortices and a measure of IQ. And this is not true for tissue loss in the temporal lobes. Um, and it's quite striking. You can actually calculate for you know, this many cubic centimeters of loss in the MD system, you lose so many IQ points. Um, it's a strong, clear relationship. 
So this system is clearly an important part of the cognitive um, arsenal of humans because the ability to think flexibly and abstractly and to solve new problems are exactly, um, uh, you know, the, these are the kinds of abilities that um, IQ tasks aim to measure are considered kind of one of the hallmarks of uh, human cognition. Okay, so as I mentioned, the complementary approach for addressing questions um, about language specificity and relationship to other mental functions is to examine cognitive abilities in individuals who lack a properly functioning language system. And most telling are cases of global aphasia. So this is a severe disorder which affects pretty much the entire frontotemporal language system, typically due to a large stroke in the um, middle cerebral artery, um, and lead to profound deficits in comprehension and production. And uh, Rosemary Varley at UCL has been studying this population for a few years now. And with her colleagues, she has shown um, uh, that actually um, these patients seem to have preserved um, abilities across many, many domains. So she showed that they have intact arithmetic abilities. They can reason causally. Um, they have good nonverbal social skills. They can navigate in the world. They can perceive music and so on and so forth. And of course, these findings are then consistent with the kind of picture that um, emerges in our work um, in fMRI. Let's consider another important non-linguistic um, capacity, which a lot of people often um, bring up um, when I tell them about this work. How about the ability to extract meaning from non-linguistic stimuli? Right, so given that um, our language regions are so sensitive to meaning, we can ask how much of that response is due to the activation of some kind of abstract conceptual representation that language may elicit, rather than something more language-specific, um, uh, semantic representation um, type. type. So um, to, to ask these questions, we can look at how language regions respond to nonverbal meaningful representations. In one study, we had people um, uh, look at events like this, um, or the sentence-level descriptions of them, and either um, we had them do um, kind of a high-level semantic um, judgment task, like decide whether the event is plausible, or do a very demanding perceptual control task. And basically what you find, um, here's again the uh, gray and black and gray are responses to the localizer conditions. So in red, um, as you would expect, you find strong responses to the, sen to the condition where people see sentences and make semantic judgments on them. Um, and so what happens when people um, make semantic judgments on pictures? We find that some regions don't care at all about those conditions, and other regions um, show uh, reliable responses, but they're much weaker than those elicited by the meaningful um, sentence condition. So could it be that some of our language regions are actually abstract semantic regions? Perhaps, but for now keep in mind that the response um, uh, to the sentence meaning condition is twice stronger, um, and uh, it is also possible that participants may be activating linguistic representations to some extent when they encounter meaningful visual stimuli. So to answer this question more definitively, we're turning to um, the patient evidence again. If parts of the language system are critical for processing meaning in non-linguistic representations, then um, aphasic individuals should have some difficulties with nonverbal semantics. First, I want to share a quote with you um, from Tom Lobock, a, a former uh, art critic at the, at the, at the Independent, um, who developed um, a tumor in the left temporal lobe, which eventually um, killed him. And as the tumor progressed and he was losing his linguistic abilities, he was documenting his impressions of what it feels like to, be, to lose the, um, the capacity to express yourself using verbal means. So he wrote, my language to describe things in the world is very small, limited. My thoughts when I look at the world are vast, limitless, and normal, same as they ever were. My experience of the world is not made less by lack of language, but is essentially unchanged. And I think this quote quite powerfully highlights the separability of language and thought. 
So in um, work that I'm currently um, collaborating on with Rosemary Varley and uh, Nancy Kemwisher, we are evaluating the global aphasics performance on a wide range of um, uh, tasks requiring you to process meaning in uh, nonverbal stimuli. So for example, can they distinguish between real objects and novel objects that are matched for low-level visual properties? Can they make plausibility judgments for um, uh, visual events? In, what about events where plausibility is conveyed simply uh, by the pr prototypicality of the roles. So you can't do this task by simply inferring that a watering can doesn't appear next to an egg very frequently, right? And it seems like the data so far are suggesting that they indeed seem fine um, uh, on all of these tasks. And they laugh just like we do when we see these pictures because they're sometimes a little funny. So they seem to um, uh, process these just fine. So this suggests to me that um, these kinds of tasks can be performed without a functioning language system. Um, and so even if our language system stores some abstract conceptual knowledge in some parts of it, it tells me at least that that code must live somewhere else as well. So even if we lose our linguistic way to encode this information, we can have access to it elsewhere. So to conclude this part, um, fMRI and patient studies converge in suggesting that the frontotemporal language system is not engaged in and is not needed for um, non-linguistic cognition. Um, instead, it appears that these regions are highly specialized for interpreting um, uh, and generating linguistic signals. So just um, a couple minutes on uh, what this means. So given this highly selective response to language stimuli that we observe, can we make some guesses already about what these regions actually do? I think so. Um, I think a plausible hypothesis is that this network houses our linguistic knowledge, including our knowledge of the sounds of the language, the words, the constraints on how sounds and words can combine with one another. And then essentially the process of language interpretation is finding matches between the pieces of the input that are getting into our language system and our previously stored representations. Um, and language production is just selecting the relevant subset of the representations to then convey um, um, to our communication partner. And uh, this way, and, and the form that this knowledge takes is a huge question um, in linguistic psychology and neuroscience. So one result I don't have time to discuss is that contra some claims, it doesn't seem to be the case that syntactic processing is localized to a particular part of this language system. It seems it's widely distributed across, and anywhere throughout the system you find sensitivity to both word-level meanings and compositional aspects of language, which is much in line with all current linguistic theorizing, which doesn't draw a short, sharp boundary between the lexicon and grammar. So this way of thinking about the language system as a store of our language knowledge makes it pretty clear that the system is probably not innate. Um, in fact, it must arise via experience with language as we accumulate this language store. It's also presumably dynamic, changing all the time as we get more and more linguistic input through our lifetimes. And I assume that our language knowledge is plausibly acquired with uh, domain general statistical learning mechanisms, just like much um, uh, other knowledge. So what changed? Um, uh, in our brains that allowed for the emergence of this system. So one thing that um, one thing that changed is that our association cortices is expanded. So these are regions that are not sensory and motor regions and include frontal, temporal, and parietal regions. Okay, so this people have um, noted for a long time. Um, and I think um, I'm kind of in the camp of people who think that our brains are not categorically different in any way. They're just scale, scaled up versions of other primate brains. There's, I think there's quite good evidence for that. And uh, so how does the system emerge? So I think one thing that was different between us and uh, chimps 
is that um, there is a protracted course to the brain development in humans. So between birth and adulthood, our brains increase threefold compared to just twofold in chimps. It's a big difference. Um, and basically, this just makes us exceptionally um, susceptible to environmental influences, and we can soak stuff up from the environment very, very easily. So as our brains grow, you know, we make more glial cells, we make more synapses, our axons continue to grow and become myelinated, and uh, it's basically tissue that's ready to soak up the regularity that we see in the world. And of course, it comes at a cost. That's why we'll have totally useless babies that can't do anything. But uh, <laughs> apparently, somehow, it was worth uh, the trade-offs were worse, uh, worth it. Um, okay, so the conclusions is, you know, we have this system. It's highly selective in its responses. It presumably emerges over the course of our development. And what enabled it is probably some combination of the expansion of these association cortices where we can store vast amounts of symbolic information and this protracted brain development, which makes us great learners early on. Okay, thank you. Thank you.